every day the Christian faces dangers merely by awaking and rising from the bed. From within, each person faces the same confrontations of the heart, those enticements that appeal to our pride, appeal to our lust, and appeal to our desires. They seek to detain us from pursuing our Lord and our Savior. From the outside, there lurks other dangers. Dangers that seek not merely to detain us from seeking after our Lord and Savior, but that seek to cause us to actually depart from him completely. This is a danger that was spoken of in the previous section of 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we discussed last week in those verses 1 through 5, where Paul provides a warning that indeed some will depart. It's called apostasy. It's a scary thought, but it's a very real danger. A danger that if it is not taken seriously, as I said last week, it will cause people to let their guard down. Though this is a very real and a very serious danger, the Lord being good and being faithful, he does not leave his creation without a defense. And that's what we find this morning in our text. So I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to bring to you a message I have titled, God's Antidote to Worldly Living. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For the sake of context, I'm going to read the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant, good minister of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. 
Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You may be seated. After his death in 1963, it became known that John F. Kennedy suffered from a variety of health problems. But prior to that point, any potential health problems that he may have had were very publicly and very vehemently denied, even being denied on national news coverage on the eve of the election of 1960. Years prior to that date, while traveling in London, Kennedy collapsed in his hotel room, and uncertain of what to do, a woman by the name of Pamela Harriman called her father-in-law, Winston Churchill. Churchill and his doctor both rushed together to the hotel, and upon examining Kennedy, the doctor turned to Pamela and said, your young friend has one year to live. He has Addison's. At that time, Addison's was a fatal disease. It had no hope of treatment. And then a man by the name of Percy Julian created a synthetic form of cortisone in 1949 made from bile acids. Prior to that point, cortisone had been produced from an incredibly rare compound called osmium tetroxide. Like most things that were rare, and even today, like most things that are rare, it was also very expensive. But Julian's development then made it affordable to anybody. Though it only treated the symptoms and not the disease itself, it meant that those with Addison's could now live. At that point, Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, purchased vials of that cortisone and then he stored them at various safety deposit boxes around the world. Three times in his life, 1937, 1947, and 1951, Kennedy was thought to be on the very verge of death. So close to death and so serious was the situation that as a good Catholic, each time he was given last rites. The incident in 1951 occurred while he was in the South Pacific covering the Japanese elections for Hearst newspapers. And because his father had stashed those vials of cortisone around the world, he was able to be administered that in time and indeed actually lived. Anecdotes make life livable. While death may seem inevitable, an antidote administered rightly and in a timely manner, makes life possible. Stricken with some sort of sickness or poison that may threaten the life, an antidote reverses the effects, and it prevents death. Through the years, there have been all kinds of different antidotes developed, such as any antivenom, ones like Narcan, Atropine, or Editate Gaussium Disodium. These treat things like opiate overdose, or heavy metal poisoning, or if you fear KJB, sarin poisoning. But there is a sickness greater than any of those. It is more widespread than cancer, more harmful than a stroke, 
And it is a sickness that kills more slowly than congestive heart failure. It's called sin. Sin kills both the physical heart and the spiritual heart. Sin kills not just the brain, but the mind. Sin destroys both the body and the soul. And so living in a world that exposes us to a variety of dangers, dangers of sin, we live with the threat of both physical and spiritual health every day. But just as we have many treatments for physical disease, the Lord has given us a treatment for spiritual disease as well. That's called godliness. The antidote to sinfulness, the antidote to worldliness is godliness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul shares this antidote with us in our text this morning. If you put these things before your brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is a savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul has written about the sin of ingratitude, denying God's goodness and the good gifts that the Lord has given. Paul has also written about the sin of hypocrisy, and those who have seared their consciences. But very poignantly, he has highlighted the sin of apostasy. We see all of that in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Timothy 4. He gives serious warnings of what can happen in any church today. But now he offers hope. Hope that is found really here in the leadership of the church. He not only writes to Timothy as the current leader of the Ephesian church, but those following verses, verses 6 through 10, speak of how one is to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. That phrase in verse 6 is more specific than servant. It means minister. So that it should say, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus if you put these things before the brothers. Paul is writing primarily to the towards the leaders at this point. And that word minister gives reference to the Lord and to those that the Lord has called to serve him by shepherding the church. Whether you call them pastors or elders or bishops, he is singling out those charged with leading the church. There are lessons here, not just for leaders and not just for those who may desire leadership, though the text definitely speaks to them directly. But also there are lessons here for every person. Because the words that are written here speak to how to guard against apostasy. These words reveal God's antidote to the sinfulness that seeks after each and every single one of us every day. That antidote, the medication administered to us, is to counteract the effects of sinfulness. And it's called godliness. This morning we see three aspects of godliness. But I want you to see that just as sinfulness 
may affect the entire life, godliness also is supposed to affect the entire life. You will notice in your bulletin in the outline this morning that by the verses referenced after each point, I intend to look at this text in reverse order, beginning first in verse 10. And so I want you to note first, life's ambition, the goal of godliness. Life's ambition, the goal of godliness. Verse 10 gives purposes to life by saying, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Because of who God is, all that he creates is full of meaning. Because God is purposeful, all that he has created has a purpose as well. But one's purpose must be derived from God. Without him, life is aimless. It is meaningless. But because of the hope of salvation we have from him, Our life's purposes then are found in him as well. Our God is a living God, it says. He's not a dead idol who is impotent against the ways of the world. But because he is living, he has overcome the evil that devours those on earth. Thus he is able to provide salvation. He rescues the perishing so that they will not experience eternal agony awaiting them in hell. It says, we have our hope set on the living God, who is a savior of all people, especially of those who believe, meaning that his work as savior, it is sufficient for everyone, but it is only effective for those who renounce the ways of the world and turn to him for that rescue. This is why we pray for all people in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we talked many months ago. We pray for the salvation of all because, as it says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet, despite the Lord's desire that all be saved, only those who believe will truly be saved. To those who believe, Romans 9.26 says, they will be granted the privilege of being called the sons of the living God. The Lord's designation as a living God is critical because if he were not living, there would be no need for us to toil and to strive, as it says in verse 10. If he were not living, if he was not living, then evil and sin would have never been defeated. Sin and evil would have been left to reign very freely in this world. But in his life, by living, it demonstrates that his power, and his control over that evil. He is able to conquer evil and sin because he is living. And so through him, we have the power and see the ability to conquer that evil and sin, and therefore we toil and strive because it is possible to overcome sin with godliness. But this call is strenuous. It is arduous. He does not say that godliness comes from those who are idle or those who engage in the trivial. What this text says is that we toil and strive to the end. 
A person gives all that they have until godliness has its full and final effect, which means it doesn't actually happen fully and freely until heaven. And so therefore, as long as we're on this earth, we're not idle in this labor of godliness. The Apostle Paul uses two very specific words here, labor and strive, or toil and strive, depending on your version. Labor means to work hard to the very point of exhaustion, while strive carries this idea of engaging in a struggle to the point of agony. In 1996, Washington State endured one of its most severe winters in history when they got dumped on with a bunch of snow. And perhaps you remember it. That snow then melted very fast, and it produced widespread flooding across the state. Unable to get into town for practice for something I had that day, my family decided to help a neighboring community. We did so by sandbagging to stop some of the flooding in certain areas and certain homes. It was a unique experience, and I remember at one point being driven to this area where water was literally flowing through the city. About 25 of us, perhaps more, formed a chain passing sandbag after sandbag after sandbag to one another seeking really to just put them in place and trying to divert the water to go around. At 13 years old, my strength was very limited, especially in comparison to the men around me. But I remember laboring on and on and giving all that I had until finally I collapsed. Never before and never since have I ever felt so utterly wasted because of physical work. But even that is not what Paul has in mind here when he talks about toil and striving. Toiling and striving goes beyond that intensity to something much more demanding. It's interesting that most people will give much of their physical body for their physical job. They complete their daily job until exhaustion. Or they'll work around the home, even to the point of causing themselves harm. I'm reading a story of a young man whom you would all at least know by name. And he shares the story of being in the military and undergoing training. And on the final march for his training to, to graduate into the next level, he says they had made it really far. But after stopping briefly, the medics had called him over and, and noticed that he had begun to limp. So they asked him to pull off his boots. And when he pulled off his boots and his socks, the skin and everything around it peeled away as well. The medics told him that he couldn't go on. His commanding officer came over and said, we have about six miles to go. I know you can do this. And I know that if you don't do this, you will regret it. Though he was in agony, the young man did indeed complete the journey. When was the last time we engaged in the spiritual disciplines in this manner? When was the last time someone stayed on their knees in prayer until the joints ached and the skin was raw just like that? 
When was the last time someone studied the word of God for so long that they forewent so much sleep that it began to cause hallucinations? That's a picture of what we see here in this text in verse 10. But a person does that because we have a living God. If God wasn't living, then all that a person has done is just damage their knees and damage their mind. But because he's a living God, there is hope. There is expectation that this fight will indeed produce godliness and allow one or help one to forsake sinfulness. Christ has many ministers. Some are bad. Some are indifferent. But how noble it is for one to seek to be a good minister. It is in this that we find the purpose of people. This is life's ambition. This is the goal of every created being, to glorify God by laboring and striving to pursue after godliness. Godliness is not without merit. The goal of godliness comes with a purpose. It comes with its own benefits. The very first trustworthy statement that Paul gives in this book is the idea that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then in chapter 3, there's a trustworthy saying that says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But now we have the third trustworthy statement in this book. and begins in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. From this, I want you to note life's condition, the gain of godliness. Life's condition, the gain of godliness. The goal of life is godliness, and that produces a gain. J. Oswald Sanders reminds us spiritual ends can be achieved only by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. For ministry to be effective, it must continue in godliness. Effective ministry is not found in the doctrine of demons in verse 1, nor is it found in the old wives' tales of verse 7. The first part of verse 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Again, some of your versions may say old wives' tales. The original text carries both meanings, referring to something like the tall tales that women would tell one another in order to pass the day's work. Though they were words of fiction and fantasy, nothing but fanciful imaginations, they were treated as though they were true. We actually have our own versions of these in today's culture. I was listening to a Christian news podcast on Friday, and it caught my attention because the person mentioned Washington State, and specifically he mentioned Yakima. But what the commentator was doing was drawing attention to the fact and the resurgence of the story of Bigfoot. That's what we have here, an old wives' tale. It lacks any evidence. And yet it is a story that is treated as true. This is a concept that is in mind by the irreverent, silly myths that Paul speaks of. (coughs) It's these types of stories that Paul 
writes to Timothy about it, and after preaching truth to him, says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke the others sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So instead of being taken in by these fanciful stories, he says instead, train yourselves in godliness or for godliness. That's a well-known term in the Greek culture of Paul's day. Everybody had adopted that term. The Platonists used the word to refer to one's just right conduct before their gods. Lucian said that godliness simply refers to one's love of God. Basically, any Greek ethicist of the day would say that godliness is one's moral character as a result of loving God. But what Paul would say, and we wouldn't have to agree with him, is that godliness is a right attitude and a right response towards the one true God. In its most simple form, I would tell you, godliness is Christ-likeness. It is a response to who Christ is and what he's done. If we call ourselves Christians, that term means little Christ. We're calling ourselves little Christ, and not in the sense that we're gods like Christ, but that we have the character of Christ. And to be like Christ means that we are disciplined in Christ-likeness. We are disciplined in godliness. And notice that according to verse 8, it requires training. Godliness doesn't just happen. It requires one to discipline himself or herself. It signifies a regular, rigorous training regimen that one engages in. I'd be negligent if I did not take us to 1 Corinthians 9, a passage that when we read this about godliness is so often referred to. And there in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's a physical picture of what is being taught about a spiritual reality in this text. Pictured as a self-sacrifice of an athlete who will train day after day to gain the prize. Consider the example of Lieutenant General William K. Harrison, who was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division, rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison was the very first American to enter Belgium during the war. And he did so at the very head of the Allied forces. He has received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was honored with the Distinguished Service of the Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. Purple Heart is interesting because he was one of very few generals who were wounded in the war. When the Korean War began years later, he served as the chief of staff in the United Nations Command. And because of his character and because of his calm self-control, 
President Eisenhower chose him to lead the negotiations to end that war. When he was 20 years old, just a cadet at West Point, he began reading the Old Testament, and then the New Testament. And what developed is he would read the Old Testament once every year and the New Testament four times every year. He did this until the very end of his life. And even in the thick of war, he maintained his commitment by catching up on their days off during those two and three day periods of respite. So when he ended the war, he was right on schedule where he needed to be. When at the age of 90, when his eyesight was failing and didn't permit him to read any longer, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. His story tells us it's possible, even for the busiest of people, to systematically train themselves in God's Word. And his life remains a demonstration of the benefits of a godly person's intentionality at immersing themselves in Scripture. Those who were closest to General Harrison say that in every life, aspect of his life, his domestic life, his spiritual life, his professional life, and with each of the great problems that he may have faced, he was always informed by Scripture, and people marveled at his godliness and his ability to bring the Word to light in every situation. Disciplining oneself for godliness is just as it sounds. It is a training process that may be excruciating for a time, but upon building up the calluses and the muscles, it strengthens one to be able to do the very work of God. The author of Hebrews shares with us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Godliness is good for gain. Notice that the profit of godliness, the gain of godliness in our text has both temporal and eternal benefits. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In this life, godliness deflects the trials and troubles that we will face. Though a person will experience trials in life, godliness enables one to endure in those trials. It doesn't make the difficulty go away, but rather it allows a person to accept that as God's work in those trials. Godliness says that in the midst of a storm, that God's work refining that person, smoothing out those rough, sharp edges. Just as James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But godliness has an effect not just for now, but for the life that is to come. When he writes his next letter to Timothy, Paul offers insight into this when he introduces himself, the very first verse of that book, or that epistle. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promises of the life that is in Christ Jesus. 
The Lord Jesus Christ promises not just life, but abundant life, saying that I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. That's what's in view here. Physical discipline profits something, but spiritual discipline profits godliness, which results in that abundant life in Christ. I think it's worth noting a, a comment by R. Kent Hughes, who says, discipline sounds much like legalism. Legalism, though, is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. Life's ambition is to pursue godliness. Life's condition is to enjoy the gain of godliness. But I want you to note, finally, life's application, the goodness of godliness. Life's application, the goodness of godliness. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Godliness makes one a good servant of Christ. And as always with the word of God, this is where we see belief influence behavior. Having been trained in the word, having developed good doctrine, the good minister not only knows the truth, but lives it out. Paul says, you have followed it. So a good leader doesn't just know doctrine, he lives it. Notice the relationship, both belief and action are necessary. One could have right doctrine, but choose to ignore it and never live it out. At the same time, a person could have plenty of action, but still be an heir because they have wrong doctrine. Both of these are failures and detrimental to the church. A person needs both. True godliness comes from both having a right belief and a right behavior. But here in our text, the word godly, the word of God identifies a specific action. It says to put these things before the brothers. The church of Ephesus is in danger. Again, we just read of that in verses 1 through 5, how they're following the doctrine of demons, how they're going astray. But a good minister, in light of that, will lay these things before them, laying out the doctrine of demons and the doctrine of the word of God and exposing the heirs of the former. The good servant, the noble minister, to use the literal terms, he's like a bricklayer. He's placing stepping stones down so that the people can take the next step literally laying down the path before them so that they're not diverted into another path and go wayward. It's an ongoing process. As long as we live, falsehood will always seek to lead people astray, which means the process of laying truth before people is also always ongoing. It never stops. If it does stop, the church puts itself in danger of becoming apostate, just like the previous section shows. The Lord here is speaking to leaders primarily. And so this task of laying truth before the people and exposing the error of their ways, whether in belief or in behavior, it falls to them. The Lord holds leaders accountable. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 3. We give it an example of this. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. It says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, 
nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Verse 19. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. And because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. And then verse 21, but if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. This is why the qualifications of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy are critical. The leader who doesn't maintain these qualifications, the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, won't care enough about the people to warn them when they're in danger of walking from the Lord. He cares more about being comfortable himself. He doesn't want to be uncomfortable by having to tell someone they are wrong. Or worse, he may be wandering away from the Lord but with a seared conscience like we see in the previous verses, he doesn't even realize it. We don't like to be challenged. We don't want to be made uncomfortable. So we actually overlook this task. But that's because we fear man more than we fear God. A fear of God would pray if I see somebody wondering, Lord, give me wisdom that I may correct them. And Lord, use your people to show me how I may be wandering from you. This is what we should want from our leaders. That's what we should want from our spouses. And that's what we should want from our friends. We should be surrounding ourselves with churches and people like this. There's another fascinating aspect about this text. When we confront error, how do we usually go about it? by standing against the world. But what this text tells us is that we correct error by first correcting the church. To quote Robert Gramacki, the primary role is not hunting wolves, but shepherding the sheep. I read three different books this week by three different authors from three different eras. And yet every single one of them had the very same conclusion. The church is largely ineffective in the world because it has been ineffective in the church. How can we confront air out there if we can't confront air in here? I might even take that a step further and say, how can we confront air in here if we're not first confronting air in here? Meaning, how can I confront air in others if I'm not confronting air in my own heart? It's actually the very point of Matthew chapter 7. But 1 Timothy 4, 6 makes the connection for us that correction occurs when one has and follows right doctrine. We are largely ineffective in the culture and in the church because by and large, we are in an era that is pretty much biblically illiterate and biblically ignorant. For too many people, the study of the word of God is an intrusion into a busy life. But the word is the foundation for excellence, both in ministry and in personal life. 
Sanctification is more than avoiding error, writes John MacArthur. It is being built up with truth. The word of God, then, is not just informational, it is formational. It's funny because as I read and studied this text, several commentaries, three or four of them, all gave the same example. They all said that a lack of study by a minister will lead to becoming a sentimentalist in his preaching because he will rely more on sappy stories and modern cliches. To place truth before the people, we need to know the truth. But there really tends to be two common methods of study. Nothing but the Bible or anything but the Bible. Nothing but the Bible says I only need the Bible. Actually, that's true. The Bible does speak to that and says that a person can read and understand it, at least at its basic levels. But when going deeper, sometimes help is necessary. We are sinners prone to make mistakes in our understanding. The anything but the Bible method is a method that may read scripture but immediately relies on the notes or the commentary. Basically, it says, tell me what to believe. The correction is we need both. We always read scripture first without any influence. And then after gathering all those thoughts, we look to other tools and other sources. And then we ask, what am I missing that I should see here? And what am I concluding that nobody else seems to be getting out of this text that might be wrong? Only after establishing right doctrine, one follows it and then imparts it to others. What Timothy is doing here is just deploying Ezra 7.10 to study the word, to do it, and to teach it to others. You need all three of those steps, though. Toiling and striving in godliness requires toiling and striving in our study of the word. This is the application of godliness. Seek it out, live it out, lay it out before others. Life's ambition is the pursuit of godliness. As beings created in the image of God, our purpose is to glorify him by pursuing that godliness. This is a good, godly goal. And it makes life worthwhile. It makes life livable because it causes one to have an abundant life and to not be strained by sin. That's life's condition, the gain of godliness, which is then lived out in the application, bringing about God's goodness by correcting falsehood. Godliness is the antidote to worldliness. If you were to be bit by a rattlesnake, you would be given the antidote crofab. This is to stave off the venom that has entered the body and could cause death. In the same, day, same way, when bitten by Satan and the venom of worldliness makes its way through, slowly depriving the brain of oxygen and, and killing the heart from within, the antidote of godliness counteracts the effects. It restores life. In a message during chapel this week, someone shared this warning from John Piper. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. 
For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife, seen in Luke 14. He goes on and says, The greatest adversary of love to God is not the enemies, not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace the, an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. And Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then, he says, Luke 8, as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. There are basic meat and potatoes and coffee, and gardening, and, and reading, and decorating, and traveling, and investing, and TV watching, and internet surfing, and shopping, and exercising, and collecting, and talking. All of them could become deadly substitutes for God. Our enemy of godliness are not those things that appear as enemies, but those things that appear indifferent and even friendly. Godliness puts us on guard so that so this doesn't happen. It warns us so that we don't become like the church in Ephesus. Godliness makes us better spouses. It makes us better employees. It makes us better leaders. It makes us better church members. It makes us better friends, and so on. We speak much of sin and how no part of life remains uninfluenced by sinfulness. But in the same way, just as sinfulness impacts the whole, so also godliness should impact the whole. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're grateful, as we read in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning, Lord, that you do not leave us without hope, that you do not leave us without the ability and the capability to pursue after you, Lord, Father, that as we have worldliness that seeks to entice us, seeks to divert our attention from you, Lord, you've given us godliness. Father, put into our hearts a desire to pursue after it, Lord, to strive and labor and toil for it, Lord. Father, may we seek to glorify you by pursuing that godliness, and may we have confidence knowing that it is achievable simply because you've made it possible. You would not require of us something that you yourself did not make possible, Lord. And so, Father, cause us to rest in you, seeking after godliness because it proclaims you, Lord. We ask for you to continue convicting and convincing our hearts of these things. Teach us of your ways and your will, Lord. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.